0: So today, how to give you the importance of these 12 tribes of Israel. Well, let's start by, first of all, defining God's family as it's poured out for us and described here in the book of Genesis. God's family, how is that defined? And it's defined through these 12 tribes of Israel. Now remember, Jacob the father was renamed Israel when he had a wrestling match in the night with an angel, or with God, and uh, he was forevermore named Israel, and so his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, and I just shared with you who those were and what his blessing was for each of them as they began. Now, there's a a great amount of, of study that has gone into the study of numbers in the Bible. It's not really a science, but some people take it to great extremes. It's called numerology, and they look at different numbers throughout the historical text of the Bible and try to come to some understanding of what that means. And I can tell you that the number 12 throughout the Bible is very, very significant. It appears, uh, all told, 187 times in the Bible, and there are derivatives of it throughout, and in various places. But from beginning to end, the number 12 seems to represent a sense of completion or a sense of perfection, if you will. And so the message with the 12 tribes of Israel, of course, is that that this is the completeness of of God's family established upon the earth uh, in the beginning. Now, in, um, in addition in the Old Testament to the 12 tribes of Israel, there there, um, there are numerous uh, other places where it's mentioned as well. There were 12 spies that would eventually go and look at the land of Canaan when the Israelites were preparing to, to go in and uh, take by conquest that land. Throughout that, there are numerous instances of 12, 12 minor prophets, if you will. And when you get to the New Testament as well, it continues on, Jesus Jesus is just 12 years old when he is lost in the temple in Jerusalem because his parents have taken him there to become a child of the law, if you will, like every 12-year-old Jewish boy at that time, and girls today even, become at that age of rite of passage. Jesus chose the 12 disciples because, in large measure, Judaism set up these schools with rabbis that had 12 students for each rabbi because they were so ingrained in their mindset of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus did multiple things in 12. He healed a woman that had been bleeding 12 years in Luke's Gospel, and in the same chapter, he raised again a girl 12 years old whose mother was distraught because she had died. Throughout, even into the, the New Testament letters, and especially in Revelation, the number 12 continues to roll through and, and reign on in the vision that John shares for us of, of what uh, God's city of, of life in the end will be. There's the number 12 throughout that. Twelve gates in that city of God, all named for one of the different tribes of Israel the measurements of the walls and all that lies there, the the 12 gates made out of pearl that are there, all of those derivative of this number 12 that shows completion of God's work and perfection. So for these 12 tribes, were they perfect? Well, you heard the reading and the blessing and even the curses of some of these sons. Were you listening to that as I was reading along? I have a chart Of the family tree and you see of course Abraham that was given the promise by God made the covenant with God that he would have great people in a great land in which to dwell if he would make God his God and Abraham had sons one of those being Isaac and through Isaac was born Jacob third generation and to him 12 sons through four different wives. Now, we talked about early on how Christian understanding of marriage is is monogamy, not polygamy. And there's a reason for that. There was great rival among these 12 sons, not just because they were vying for for themselves wanting to be blessed with uh, inheritance, but because they had different mothers as well that didn't see eye to eye on things, as you can understand, uh, sister wives don't really do. Uh, So Leah had four sons. Remember, she was uh, the older daughter of the girl that he really wanted to marry, Rachel. And he had with her four sons. And then with Leah's servant, or handmaiden, had two. That was a common practice in the day. And then Rachel, his beloved Rachel, that he really worked 14 years to have her hand in marriage. With her, he had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, the last two. And before that, two sons with her handmaid, her servant, Bilhah. So there you have a family that is a mixed family, if you will. And not all things were rosy and fine. Remember, we talked about how even through the most difficult family situations, God can bring goodness and reconciliation and grace. And that was certainly the case through the family of Jacob, through Israel and his 12 sons. Reuben, the very first one, was written out of the will and not given any land when the Israelites went and and by conquest took that land of Canaan because you heard it. He slept with one of his father's wives, and incest was definitely, definitely wrong. Simeon and Levi were, were um, chided, or shall I say even cursed, for wiping out a village once upon a time. And they did that out of great violence because their sister had been taken advantage of and raped, and yet they went beyond just avenging her death or bringing about justice they slaughtered mercilessly, hundreds of people in that village, even even the animals, so that the children and the widows that were left would not be able to to grow food and be able to take care of themselves. And out of their heartlessness, God said, "You will not get a blessing for me through through Jacob." Judah, the one that is probably most familiar to most people, was very blessed, and through Judah it is that there would be some thousand plus years later a child that would be born in Bethlehem of the house of Judah, whose name would be Jesus. And it was through him that that term the Lion of Judah came about because of this tribe that was one of Israel's sons. Well, not to go through all of these, but plain and simply to say that this was God bringing together a nation of people through which he would work in the world and bring about a blessing for the world. Not perfect, for sure. And yet, we talked about all along that God is trying to cultivate a a source of grace in the world in the midst of great turmoil and great violence and hatred and starvation to be able to bless the world. And he does that through these 12 I have a map next of of the lands that that were divided up among the the tribes of Jacob. And some of those were given to Joseph's sons because of the the misgivings or the the sins of Reuben, the oldest son, and uh, Simeon and Levi. And just to let you know what happens from this point forward is is after a series of judges that helped to organize them, and then kings of Israel, the kingdom divides into a northern kingdom of ten tribes and a southern kingdom of of two tribes. And, eventually over time, superpowers surrounding them, which were Assyria and Babylon, overtook this land and these tribes, and they hauled them off to lands far away and the ten tribes of Israel were lost. There's no lineage that is recorded of that. There's no connection of Jewish people back to those ten, but there is to the other two, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, because they were allowed by a benevolent dictator to return back to their homeland and reestablish their nation. And so in the chapter 49 of Genesis, we have... God's family upon the face of the earth, the physical earth, defined for us. But second, we point out today that God's family continues to grow from there and beyond. There is growth in God's family upon the face of the earth. And of course, the Israelites that are in in power and in a position of, of prominence, of prosperity in Egypt, they continue to multiply. And three, four generations later, Lo and behold, a new Pharaoh that comes into power determines that they're now a threat because they're so large, an army that he's afraid of. And so he takes drastic measures to oppress them, to put them into slavery, to make them make bricks without straw as they are building for him, and even to cast out their firstborn sons, their youngest, uh, or their, first, their, their sons, so that their numbers will no longer multiply. But throughout that whole conquest of of the people of Israel and as they escape by God sending Moses into this desert, to this wilderness where they wander for 40 years, eventually, eventually they take passage across the Jordan into that promised land that was promised to these 12 sons through the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, fast forward some hundreds of years later, and you will find Jesus coming onto the scene. And he comes into the world as one of their own, as the Jewish people's uh, son, if you will. And he was the Son of God, the Messiah. And he was crucified, and he was risen from the grave. And for those that believed in him as such including us, we know that he was the fulfillment, if you will, the completeness of God's family upon the face of the earth. Now, it's interesting, Romans 11, this is the New Testament where Paul is writing and giving an explanation to the churches in Rome about a very difficult and challenging question that they're grappling with there in Rome. This is a question I've been asked quite a few times in my years of ministry. And that is that if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified and risen, and we have passage to God through our faith in him, what about all of those people that did not know who he was, who were either born before he came into the world or those now that do not believe? What about those Jews who didn't understand that he was Messiah when he came upon the earth and was there in Jerusalem? And Paul, in this this beautiful letter, his masterpiece of letters to the Christian church helps to define and helps us to understand through his explanation how it is that God's grace is sufficient to take care of these things. He talks about this term of grafting. Now, I've got a picture, Cameron's thrown up, of an olive tree that is grafted who grows trees or knows what grafting is that's here today. A few. What you do is you take a shoot off of a tree and you can plant it onto another tree through a process by which it begins to grow into it and tap into it and become a part of this tree and, and become more fruitful because of that. When a tree is old and, and when it's even cut down to nothing more than a stump, A new branch can be grafted onto that stump and new life can come of it. New produce and fruit can come out of it. And Paul says that even though the Jewish people that that were of the 12 tribes of Israel did not believe, as if they were branches broken off for not understanding Jesus, so there was a place for the Gentiles that had no claim whatsoever to these 12 tribes of Israel to be supplanted into the family of God. And he says that it's by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, simply by faith that we are given the opportunity to become the family of God. What a beautiful concept. What a beautiful gift of of life. What a transforming, life-changing opportunity, not just for Gentiles but for the whole world to be a part of this family of God that was established upon the earth in the Old Testament to be a blessing to the world. Obviously, in the church, there's a lot of language that we talk about of 12 disciples and being the family of God. And we know that we are to share our faith and to share with others this good news that God's love is for them and that they have a place at his table and in his church as well. But that's not always the case, is it? I was reading an interesting article this last week about a guy named uh, Tom Terence, and he runs the C.S. Lewis Institute out of Washington, D.C. He's devoted his life to overcoming bigotry and racial supremacy and hate. And there's a story behind that, if you will. As a young man, he found himself suddenly imprisoned when he was growing up back in the 1970s because he had gotten wrapped up in a white supremacy group and, and was conditioned and, and riled up to go and actually attempt uh, blowing up a Jewish home of people that were of the Jewish race and lineage. He had no idea that he was doing anything wrong at the time. He grew up in church, he thought that he was saved by Christ, his sins were forgiven. And it was not until he was sentenced and convicted and started his prison term that he had so much time on his hands and very little uh, things to read, no more uh, supremacy uh, writings or things for which he could feed on, but instead he simply had the Bible and he decided that he would read it. It completely and totally changed his life because he found that the Bible very much says that any hatred and bigotry and, and supremacy of one race over the other is completely and totally wrong. He was a white supremacist. But he came to this chapter in the book of Romans where Paul says that we should not hold over others, that we have the gift of salvation and life in God, but we should instead love them and show it to them so that they too may be grafted into the family of God faith. I think about last weekend and the mass shootings that that I've read about over the week, particularly the one in Texas. That seems to be very ro- racially motivated. Young people getting hyped up and and connected with uh, with the wrong people that that tell them that it's right and good to go out and and solve the world's problems or their differences with others by violently taking life. And what a tragedy and what a heartbreak it is. The uh, The old joke is that the the worst uh, fear of a white supremacist, or any supremacist on races, uh, racial basis, I guess would be, uh, a heredity test. Uh, my son Ben did a 23andMe test a few months back. If you've not heard about those, you get an envelope and you you spit into this bag and you seal it up and you send it off and they bring back for you your racial profile, your racial makeup of where your ancestors came from and what the mixture of the ancestry is. A, uh, a racial supremacist would have a hard time believing that the results would show they were not a pure uh, race of sorts. Yeah, we live in a world where where that kind of thing is alive and well. We don't understand it. We condemn it. We, we wish that it would not be the case. All we can do more and more, it seems, is to share the love of Jesus Christ and let everyone know that in God's family, all are given a place at the table, not based upon the color of skin or of genealogy or of the tribes of Israel, but plain and simple, By faith in Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the last thing today, is that God's family is not just a set of tribes, and it is not just um, a particular group that is included, but it is a family of faith, plain and simple. What did Jesus say about faith, about trusting God through him? He said, if you'll just have a little bit, just an amount the size of a mustard seed, which is a very tiny seed, you can say to this mountain over here, move over there, and that mountain will be moved. Through faith, through belief, through trust in God, great things can happen. We can overcome and complete things that we never thought could be the case before. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be made perfect in love, the love of Jesus Christ that should be alive and well in and through us in the world. A lot of times, we make faith out to be, don't we, a one-time experience in life? Perhaps in a in a worshipful setting like our kids, our youth might be at this weekend down at Fort Caswell with others, worshiping, feeling the Spirit of God stir among them. Having love, pure and simple, for everyone that's there. Sometimes we limit faith to those situations. Sometimes, at a critical juncture in life, as faith should be, we we face uncertain circumstances. We don't know where to turn next. We can no longer do what we need to do to provide for ourselves. And when our options have all run out, we can do nothing more but to turn to the Almighty in that moment of faith. And yet we know that faith is not just a one-time experience or not just for the hard times of life, but faith is day-to-day and week-to-week, an opportunity to live out in the world this love, this grace that God has for us all. God's kingdom is, is in heaven, and as Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven is the desired outcome. How is it this week that you, by your faith, will share that love and that offer from God to the world? How is it that you will listen to His voice to point you in the direction of being His agent, His person, His tribe, if you will, that will touch the world and bless those that are around you? I challenge you today to remember. That we, Pleasant Garden United Methodist Church, are a family of faith, a part of the family of faith of God, and to go out and to live it out, and to preach it, and to share it, and to show it to others, because our world is in great, great need. And that is my hope and my prayer for us today, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.